0: John chapter 17, we're going to read together verses 6 through verse 12. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those Whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the Son of Perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, it is our desire that through the preaching of your word and through our understanding of it, that you would be honored and glorified in our midst and in your church and in our lives. We pray that you would grant that that would be the case. Open our eyes and our hearts to your word to understand it, we ask. We pray that you would be our teacher this morning and that your word would be the focus of all that we do and all that we think. Grant us understanding in these deep and profound things so that you might be glorified through our obedience to your truth and our understanding of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. These first five verses of John, which we finished last week, verse 5, they give us kind of an overview of the redemptive plan of God, and we've looked at a lot of these very deep and profound mysteries, some deep and profound doctrines. Um, The the scope of verses 1 through 5 take us from eternity past to eternity future. You have the Son existing with the Father in glory, in infinite and eternal glory, with the glory of the Father before the world ever was. And then we look forward to the Son being glorified uh, in the Father and through His work and because He has accomplished the work that the Father has given Him to do. And between these two mountain peaks of of divine and infinite and eternal glory is all that the Son did when He came to this earth. He came to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to Him. He was granted authority over all flesh to do that very thing. He has revealed and manifested the name of the Father so as to give a true knowledge of the one true God to His people so that they may have eternal life. Because this is eternal life, that they may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And the Son has accomplished all the work that the Father gave Him to do. Lived a perfect life and dying a perfect death. The Son has completed everything that the Father gave to Him to do concerning these people whom the Father has given to Him. So verses 1-5 to is kind of an overview of the entire redemptive plan of God from God's perspective. The eternal things, things that existed and happened before time began before the creation of the world, and things that will yet take place in eternity future when we are glorified with the Son in the presence of the Father and the Son. And we enjoy and reflect that glory with the Father and with the Son. And now we come to verse 6, and this is a new section in the prayer. And I would remind you of the outline that I gave you some weeks back of this prayer, chapter 17. In verses 1 through 5, we, have, we see Christ praying for Himself. In verses 6 through 20 we see Christ praying for the 11 disciples and then in verses 21 through 26 the end of the chapter we see Christ praying for all believers. So for himself, for the 11 and then for all believers. Uh but even in praying for himself the Lord is not is is not his prayer is not selfish. Although he's praying for himself keep in mind that even praying for himself he's really praying for us. How is that the case? Because he was praying that the Father would give him the strength to glorify him on the cross. And he is praying about the salvation that he has given to his people and about those whom the Father has given to him and the glory that he will receive for accomplishing all of the work that the Father has given him to do. So even in praying for himself and that glory, he's really praying for us because the two are connected. If Christ is to accomplish all that the Father gave him and he is to glorify the Father on the cross by giving eternal life to all whom the Father has given to him and that's what concerns him in the first five verses, then that has an impact upon us, does it not? It has an impact upon those of us who have been given by the Father to the Son. So now we come to verse 6, and this is, as I said, a new section here in this prayer of the Lord Jesus. And there's an interpretive issue that we face before we dive into the text. There's a bit of an interpretive issue that we face. As we read through, and I read through at the beginning, verses 6 through verse 12, and it actually goes all the way down through verse 19. As we read through those verses, the question is this. Is the Lord Jesus, in describing these 11 disciples and the things that are true of them, describing something that is true only of those 11 men? And I say 11, you're you're familiar with thinking of 12. Just to remind you, Judas was gone. He was an unbeliever, a fake believer, never truly saved. He has left them. So the Lord Jesus is now with and praying for these 11 men who are with him now. In praying for and describing those 11 men, are the things that Jesus says true of only those 11 or of all believers? Because there are times in this evening in giving instruction to the eleven that the instructions that were given and the way that those men are described are things that are unique only to those eleven. For instance, when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind all that I said to you so that they could be the instruments of divine revelation, that was a promise to those eleven men, but not to all of us. We're not the instruments of divine revelation. We don't receive private revelation from God. We don't write scripture. We don't hear from God. That is a unique, other than through his word, that it was a unique office given to those eleven men. Likewise, the the miracles that those men were given to perform, the office of apostleship, that's not something that we share today. So there are things in this chapter and in this section of Scripture which are unique only to those 11, but then there are times when the Lord describes those 11 men and what is true of them is also true of us. So as we look through the verses, keep in mind, He is praying for those 11 men, but He is describing things that, though true of those 11, are also true of us. For instance... We, too, have been given by the Father to the Son. We, too, have been loved by the Father. We, too, are part of that work that Christ came to accomplish in saving us. So what we're going to see here are things that are characteristic not just of the 11 men, though he's praying for them, they're characteristic of all believers. And there are three of them in verse 6. Three of them in verse 6. Three things that characterize or distinguish a believer. Number one, first, they know God. Second, they belong to God in a very unique sense. And third, they obey God. They know God, they belong to God in a unique sense, and they obey God. Those first five verses which give us the grand scheme of salvation from God's perspective, from eternity past to eternity future, they include things and doctrines which now in verses 6 through the end of the chapter are unpackaged and unfolded. It's almost like the first five verses are something of an outline of the major themes of the rest of the prayer. Now we're going to dive into the rest of the prayer. We're going to see how these things keep coming up over and over again as the Lord Jesus prays specifically for these people whom the Father has given to him. So number one, the believers know God. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me, and I have kept your word. Verse 6, the first phrase, the first part of that verse, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. The word manifested there means to reveal something. It actually has the idea of taking something that is hidden or masked and making it known, and revealing it, and manifesting it, and opening it up so people can see it. And that is indeed what the Lord Jesus Christ did in coming here. He manifested for us the name of God. Now when Jesus says name, when Scripture uses the name of God, what is it speaking of? Just the the four letters of the Hebrew alphabet that spell out Yahweh? Is that all that is meant? Typically in Scripture when we read of the name of God, it's a shorthand way of referring to all of God's nature, all of His character, all of who he is, the perfections of his attributes, everything that is true about him. So you and I speak of glorifying the name of the Lord. We speak of proclaiming the name of the Lord, trusting in the name of the Lord. Those are shorthand ways of speaking of God. We're not just talking about his name proper, like my name is Jim, but speaking of all that is true of him, his reputation, his character, and his nature. And you and I use the term name that way even today, the English word name. We say that a man has a bad name in the community. What does that mean? That since his name is Bob, nobody likes the name Bob? We, we mean more than that, don't we? We mean, when you say that a man has a bad name in the community, we mean his character, his reputation, what is known of him, what is true of him, is not spoken highly of. Because of his, because of who he is, his name has that reputation. And that's how Scripture uses the term name, uh, concerning the name of God. Let me give you a couple examples. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Does that just mean simply confessing or believing in the name Jesus J E S U S or is it something more profound there? It is believing upon the one who is named by that name. That's what's meant there. Psalm fifty two verse nine, I will give you thanks forever because you have done it, and I will wait on your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. Exodus thirty four five says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Psalm twenty two, twenty two, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Acts 9.14 says, and here he has a a, a speaking of Saul of Tarsus, and we hear that he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. What, What do those verses mean? That God himself is the strong tower. We call upon God and calling upon his name, we call upon him, we rest upon all that he is in his person and in the beauty of who he is. So what has Jesus done? He has made manifest or revealed the nature of who God is. That's what verse 6 means. I have manifested your name. doesn't mean that Jesus just showed up and said, God's name is Yahweh. Mission accomplished. I'm done. Just letting you know what His name is. That's not what He's saying. He's saying, I have revealed all of the perfections of who you are, your nature and your character and your personhood, your being, your essence and substance to the men whom you have given to me. He had revealed to them the name of God, God, that is, all of God's character and his nature. And that's what the Son came to to do. When he says in verse 4, I have accomplished, having accomplished all the work on earth that you have given to me to do. When Jesus says that, one of the works that the Father had given him to do was to reveal the nature of God to men. So how did the Son manifest the character of God? John 1.18, in the very introduction to this book, you remember John says that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He's speaking there of Jesus. No one has seen the essence of the triune God in His fullness at any time. But the one who is in the bosom of God, the only begotten Son, the begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He, that is Christ, has revealed or declared Him. That's what John says at the very beginning of the Gospel. Do you want to understand who God is? Do you want to understand how God works? you want to see the nature and the character of God? And you look upon the person of Christ. Because Christ has revealed the name of the Father. Remember when Philip said to him, Show us the Father. What did Jesus say? John 14, verse 9 and 10. Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. And later on this chapter, John 17, verse 26. Jesus concludes the prayer with, And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now these men, these eleven, had the Old Testament prophets. And they had the Old Testament revelation. And they had creation. You say They should have been able to know who God was from Moses' writings and from the writings of the prophets and the writings of David in the Psalms. They had all of 39 books of the Old Testament. How did they not know who God was? What Christ came to do was to reveal the nature of God in a way that no prophet and no priest and no king could ever do. He came to reveal the nature of God in a way that nothing written could ever reveal the nature of God. And so we see in the face of Christ, the one who is the express image of God, the fullest representation, the exact representation of the nature of God, we see that in Christ. As Paul says in Second Corinthians 4, verse 6, light has shine out of darkness is the, uh, for god has said let me try it again for god who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of christ that is such a wonderful verse the god who caused light to shine out of darkness is the one who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of christ where do you see the light of the knowledge of the glory of god In the face of the one who came to manifest the name of God and to reveal him. So what is it true of believers? A believer is one who knows God because he has had the nature of God revealed to him in the person of Christ. This was the Lord's central concern. Jesus didn't say, I have come to implement policies of social justice and wealth redistribution for the poor. Jesus didn't say, I have come to show you how to elect more moral politicians. He didn't say, I've come to show you how to, to set up a theocratic kingdom and to run it rightly. I didn't come to show you... He didn't say, I have come to show you how to tolerate evil and be more accepting of iniquity. He didn't say any of that. What did he say? He came to manifest the nature of God. And that's what he did. Because as unbelievers, that is the most fundamental need of an unbeliever is to know who God is. And when we see God for who He is as an unbeliever, then we see His holiness and His righteousness and His justice and we see the wrath of God and His anger against sin, and we see all of that and we realize that I am a sinner, we realize that we are sinners and that we don't add up to that, and the good and right and just thing for God to do would be to punish lawbreakers like us in a never-ending fire of eternal conscious torment. That is what we deserve. But then we also see in the face of Christ, one who is loving and gracious and kind and compassionate and good, and one who has given His Son to pay the price for our sin. So how do we come to know all of salvation and receive eternal life? When we see the glory of God in the face of Christ and we behold in Him the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, but also the compassion and the grace and the love of God. And knowing God in that way through Christ is what brings us eternal life. What did Jesus come to do? Verse 2 of chapter 17, to give eternal life to all those whom you have given to me. How does He do that? By bringing to us a true knowledge of God in Himself, by revealing and manifesting the nature of God to us. He brings us that eternal life by showing us who God is, and this is eternal life, that we may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now here's a question for the day. To whom does Jesus reveal the Father in that way? To whom? What does the text say? Verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. To whom does Jesus reveal savingly the Father's nature? to those whom the Father has given to him for that purpose. He doesn't do it indiscriminately. He doesn't just make himself known savingly to all men. He doesn't do that because that is not why he came. He came to reveal the nature of the Father to those whom the Father has given to him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 and 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. Now listen, this is what Jesus says was well pleasing to the Father. This was well pleasing in your sight. All things that have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So who knows God in the person of Christ? Nobody. Who can know the Father? nobody except the son who can know the son nobody except the father so if nobody knows who the father is then if you have come to a knowledge of who the who the eternal god is the father why is that because the son has revealed that to you and only to and only revealed those to those Only reveal that to those whom the Father has given to Him. And just in case you think I'm taking one reference and making a whole uh, you know, weird doctrine off of it, you can see Jesus praying the same thing in Luke chapter 10, where He prays the exact same prayer. Luke records it too. This was well-pleasing to the Father. Nobody can know the Father apart from the Son, and only through the Son. And nobody knows the Father unless the Son has revealed the Father to that person. So then ask yourself, why do you have a saving knowledge of God the Father through Jesus Christ? Why is that? because you're wise, because you're smart, because you're less less of a sinner than the person who's not here this morning? For any of those reasons? Is it anything in you that has made you come to know the Father in a way that an unbeliever has not? It's not. What is it? The difference, the thing that makes you to differ from another is solely the grace of God in Jesus Christ, because he willed to reveal the Father to you. He has revealed the Father to you savingly, Brought you eternal life. Why? Because that was what the Father sent him to do. To give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to him. How does he do that? By revealing the Father to all those whom the Father has given to him. And that brings us to our second point. That believers belong to God. Believers belong to God. By the way, an unbeliever cannot understand who God is. you know why? Because we are born in darkness. We are born with hardened hearts and blind eyes and darkened minds. And God is hidden from us. Though we are born with a knowledge that God does exist and that wicked men suppress that truth and unrighteousness so that they can live unrighteous lives. Though we have that knowledge of God, we do not have a saving knowledge of God at all. In fact, we run from that salvation that God offers in the person of Christ. But God reveals himself through Christ to those whom the Father has given to him. An unbeliever cannot know these things because they are born in a state where it is impossible for them to know it. That is why all unbelievers remain in darkness, because... The Father has willed to reveal himself only to those whom he has given to the Son. Reveal himself savingly. Reveal himself savingly. There's a difference between the, the revelation that God gives in creation, which all men know. And there's a difference between that and the revelation that is in Christ of the Father, which brings eternal life and salvation. So, number two. I had to go back and clean up verse uh, point number one. Point number two. Believers belong to God in a special and unique way. Believers belong to God. Not only do we know God because Christ has revealed the Father to us, But believers also belong to God in a very unique and special way. And this idea in verse 6 is repeated frequently, not only in this passage, but also other places in the Gospel of John throughout the New Testament. Verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me. Now this idea that we are given by the Father to the Son, this is something that is repeated all the way through chapter 17. You saw it back in verse 2. Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him... He may give eternal life. So there is obviously a group of people that is given by the Father to the Son for this purpose of giving them eternal life. It's mentioned in verse 2. It's mentioned in verse 6. It's mentioned in verse 9. I ask on, behalf, on, on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Notice the distinction between those who belong to the world and those who belong to the Son because the Father has given them to the Son. That's verse 9. It's also mentioned in verse twenty father four. Twenty father. Verse twenty-four, which begins with the word Father. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. And then we're back again into what we saw in verses one through five. So there is this group of people mentioned here in chapter seventeen, all the way through this chapter. And it's mentioned in chapter six. And it's mentioned in chapter ten. Now there are some people who don't even like this doctrine. They recoil at this idea that the Father would choose a people for Himself, for His own precious possession, and give them to the Son to save. They don't like that doctrine. They think it's unfair. But let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus loved that doctrine? Do you think Jesus liked that doctrine? You may not like it, but do you think He liked it? I not only think He liked it, I think He loved it. You know why? Because it glorifies God. It glorifies the Father. And it takes... The glory right out of my hands and your hands, and it glorifies the one who sent the Son. This is the primary way that Jesus refers to us in the Gospel of John. Those whom the Father gave to him. That's how he refers to his people. Do you think Jesus liked the doctrine? I think he loved it. He doesn't make any excuses for that doctrine anywhere in the Gospel of John. Not in chapter 6. When he talks about it at length, not in chapter 10, when he talks about it in terms of his sheep, and not here in chapter 17. Nowhere does Jesus say, look, the Father has given me a people, and I want to apologize. It really wasn't fair of the Father to do this, and I know that, and I know that I would have done it differently had I had the choice. He never does anything like that. He just speaks of his people as the love gift of the Father to the Son. I think Jesus loves that doctrine, and you and I ought to love that doctrine. Let me ask you this. Who would be saved if the Father had not given a people to the Son? How many people would be saved? How many? Out of the mass of humanity that fell in Adam because of Adam's sin, all the lost and darkened and blind unbelievers, all the rebels who love darkness and hate light and cannot see God and cannot come to God and do not will to come to God and have no taste for righteousness, had the Father not chosen some and given them to His Son to save, how many of those who would have been saved? Zero. None would have been saved without that. This is part of the gracious, kind, and sovereign act of God by which He secures the salvation of untold millions to His glory and the glory of His own name, that He has guaranteed the salvation of millions because of what He has done in giving a people to His Son. I think the Lord Jesus loved that doctrine. He says in John chapter 10, verse 26, to the unbelieving Pharisees, you do not believe because you're not of My sheep. He doesn't say you're not My sheep because you don't believe. He says the reason that you do not believe is because you do not belong to Me. And He speaks of those in that passage whom the Father had given to Him. They belong to Him and that's why we believe. Why do you believe today? From God's perspective, it's because the Father gave you to the Son. From your perspective, it's because you heard the Gospel, you saw the truth, and you wanted to have it, and you believed. But from God's perspective, it's something entirely different. From God's perspective, He gave you to the Son. So of course you believe. That was the natural outworking of the divine decree. And so we are chosen out of the world. Look at verse 6. The Father has given to the Son a people. They were part of the world because you gave them to me out of the world. You and I were once part of the world system. And now we have been chosen and selected out of the world and been given to the Son. In John chapter 15, back just a couple of chapters, 18 and 19 says, If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. And here you have that doctrine again. You were of the world. You're not of the world because I chose you out of the world. And that's why the world hates you. Why does the world hate believers? because Christ has chosen us out of the world, and we do not belong to that world system anymore. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter uses imagery from the Old Testament nation of Israel. And he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people of God, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These are the people that have been chosen out of the world and been given as a love gift by the Father to the Son. And listen, those whom the Son has received from the Father are the special objects of His attention and His love and His care and His saving interests. And because we are the special gift of the Father to the Son, the Son sets His affection upon us and He loves us because the Father has loved us. The Father has loved us as well. The Father Himself loves us. And for that reason, He has set His affection upon us and chose us And for that reason, he has given us to his son to save. And the son will always perfectly and faithfully and fully accomplish the work that the father gave him to do, which is to save all those whom the father gave to the son. So believers belong to God in a very special sense. Now, all men belong to God in one sense. All men, everybody, believers, unbelievers, whether you're Moses or Pharaoh, uh, elect, non-elect, all men belong to God in this sense that they are all the creatures of God, that God holds their breath in His hands, that God determines the day of their birth, that God determines the day of their death, that that their life is in His hands and He gives to them every good gift and every good thing that they enjoy. All of it is a gift from God. They are all His creatures created in His image, whether it's Moses or whether it's Pharaoh. They all belong to God in the sense that He is the creator of all men and in that sense the Father of all men. But there is a group out of all of that mass of humanity and everyone who has ever lived and will live, there is a group out of that that has been specially chosen and given to the Son for the Son to save as an eternal bride that will honor and glorify and magnify the name of the Son for all of eternity. So in one sense, all men belong to God. But in a saving sense, it's not everyone. It's not everyone. That's just a truth that you and I have to swallow and we have to accept. Jesus doesn't apologize for it. He speaks of believers as those given to him by the Father. It's not something that should shame us and neither is it something that we should rebel against. I think it's something that we should delight. And if you understand it, you would delight in it. So the first mark of a Christian, the thing that distinguishes a Christian is we know God because the Son has manifested Himself to those whom the Father gave Him. Second, we belong to God in a very special and unique sense because the Father has given a people to His Son to save. And third, Christians obey God. We know God, we belong to God, and we obey God. The mark of a believer is that they obey and keep the Word of God. The mark of an unbeliever is is that they do not obey the Word of God. We read it in 1 John chapter 2, the first part of the chapter. The one who says, I have come to know God and yet does not walk as Christ walked is a liar. Chapter 3 says the one who continues in sin is of the devil. That perpetual habit of unrepentant sin and continuing in it is an evidence of spiritual darkness and, and spiritual death, that they are not, they do not belong to God no matter what the profession of faith is. The one who says he belongs to God and has come to know God will in fact walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which he has been called. He has come out of darkness and he will walk in the light because that is his new nature. So that the nature and the heart and the intention and the drive and the direction of a true believer is one of obedience. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means that we long to obey. And so at the end of verse 6 when Jesus says, they have kept your word. He is, he is speaking there of the apostles, the 11. But he is also describing something that he says elsewhere is true of all believers, because we've seen it earlier this evening in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you are my disciple and you belong to me, you will walk in the truth. You will obey me, just as I love the Father and I have kept his commandments. And so that expectation of obedience is there for people who actually have been given by the Father to the Son. You want to know an evidence of whether or not you have been given by the Father to the Son and whether you have had the Father revealed to you so that you have eternal life? One of the evidences of that is that you obey God and keep His Word. That's why Jesus says at the end of verse 6, they have kept your Word. He's describing there the 11. Now this is a bit curious, is it not? Odd that Jesus would say of these 11 men that they have kept your Word, that they are obedient. Does He know who He's speaking about? These are the, these are those disciples. The ones who, just back in 13, a couple hours earlier, they're all laying around the table with dirty feet. None of them want to get up and serve another. None of them wants to get up and wash the feet of another. None of them wants to be a servant. And Peter, with all of his boldness and brashness, hey, Lord, whatever happens to you, I'll follow you to the death. Confident in what he was able to do. But he wouldn't do it. These are the same disciples who had asked so many silly questions all the way through this evening. These are the same disciples who had been reproved and rebuked for their lack of faith, their lack of insight, their, their blind eyes, their hardened hearts, all the way through the ministry of Christ. The same disciples that had been told over and over again certain lessons, and they still did not get it. The same disciples who, even as Jesus is praying this, are oblivious to the fact that he is about to die on a cross, even though for the last six months he has been telling them over and over and over again that that's what, in fact, he's going to do. And what does he say of them? They've kept your word. They have obeyed you. How can the Lord Jesus say that? Of men who less than two hours from now will all flee like cockroaches when somebody turns on the light. When the soldiers come into the garden, the disciples flee. They're gone. And none of them were with him except Peter and John. None of them were with him or stood by him. And Peter himself would deny the Lord three times later that evening. They have kept your word. How can he say that of these 11 men? How can he say that of these 11 men? I think it's one of two things. I think, first of all, it may be that what we're seeing here is the love of the great high priest for his people. In other words, love does not keep a record of wrong. Love overlooks a transgression. When the Lord is describing to the Father these people whom the Father has given to Him, it is not the sins and the failings and the weaknesses and the iniquities of these people that catches His attention. That is not what He is praying about concerning these eleven men. He, He may reprove them, as He has throughout this night. He may speak to them of their weaknesses and their failures. But when He is praying to the Father about these men, it is not their weaknesses and the failures that He is praying to the Father about. He doesn't say, Father, they have kept Your Word. Almost. And these men that you have given to me, let me tell you about Thomas. The man is a doubter and he will not believe anything unless he sees it with his eyes and handles it with his his hands. And Peter, this self-confident, arrogant, bold person who speaks before he even puts two thoughts together in his mind. And he has said the stupidest things over the course of the last three years. He doesn't list the failures and the weaknesses of these 11 men because the high priest doesn't see that. He's praying for these 11 men. He knows their weaknesses. But when he prays about them and for them, to the Father, it's not listing the weaknesses. This is what the Lord Jesus does for us as our high priest in heaven. The book of Hebrews says he ever sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us. And listen, he is interceding for us and he's not listening to the Father, listening to the Father, all of our weaknesses and failures and iniquities and our sins. He's not doing that. You know, he's praying for us. There's one in the presence of the Father who accuses the brethren. That's the devil. That's not what the Lord Jesus does. So this may be just an evidence of just how much He loved them, that when he is praying for them, he's not even mindful of their sin. Aware of it, yes. He knows their weaknesses. He knows it. But that's not what he brings up. He's praying for these men as a high priest, speaking to the Father about them, and he says, and they have kept your word. Now, is it true that they had kept his word? There is a sense in which these disciples had kept the word of God. And it is this sense, that when God sent his Son into the world, the command was, believe upon him, believe upon him, had the disciples kept that? They had. These are 11 believers. These men had believed. They had trusted. Their faith is weak. Their faith is failing. They're anxious even at this moment. But they had obeyed that command. These men had believed upon the name of the only begotten Son of God. They believed that he was God in human flesh. They believed that he was the Son of God. They believed that he was the Messiah and the King of Israel, and they were trusting in him. That command they had kept. And so I think that that is probably what Jesus is referring to you. These 11 men, not like Judas, have believed upon you, and they have kept that word, that command of believing upon the one who would bring them out of darkness and into light. So what are the three things that distinguish a believer in verse 6? We know God because the Son has manifested the name of God to us, to those whom the Father has given to him. We belong to God in a very unique sense because we are part of the people who have been given by the Father to the Son, and we obey God. That is the mark of a believer. They keep the word of God in obeying him. In believing upon Him and trusting upon His Son. Now some people may object to all of this and say, well, it sounds to me like you're just one of those typical Christians who thinks that you're in a class all by yourself, you're special, you're in this whole unique group that nobody else is in, you look at the whole world and they're in one group, and you Christians, you think you're all in this special little group. Is that true? Yeah, it is. We are in a special little group. I don't make any apologies for that. We are in a special group. We are special in a very unique way. This world is not my home. The unbeliever, this is their home. And guess what they're anxious about? Which one of the GOP candidates in the Republican clown car is going to be nominated for the presidency of the United States? That's what they're anxious over. Do we worry about that? I don't care about that. This world is not my home. This country is not my home. I've been chosen out of this. I've been transferred from darkness to light. I am. You are entirely in an entirely different category, an entirely different class. But listen, that's not self-righteous for you to acknowledge that. It's self-righteousness if you think that the reason for that is because of something that you have done. That's what sets us apart from the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee who went into the temple and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I give, I tithe, I'm righteous, I don't sin like that publican over there. He was self-righteous. He thought he was in a different class because of what he had done, because of who he was, because of something in him. But as Christians, we don't believe that. We are in a different class. But why? Because of something in us? Because of something that is in God. Because of something that we have done? Not at all. Because of something that God has done. That's what puts us, sets us apart. So we are different. We are different from the world. We know God. We belong to God. And we obey God. That sets us apart. From the entire world that does not know God, does not belong to God, and does not obey God. And we don't make any apologies for that. We rejoice in it. And thank God that He has done this for the glory of His great name. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, You are good to us beyond measure, beyond description, and beyond words. We thank You that it is nothing in us that has made us Your children or or the gift, the special recipients of Your grace and Your gifts. But it is all according to Your sovereign purposes and the goodness of Your nature and Your character. We thank You that You have called us out of darkness and into light, and we pray for any who are here who do not know Christ savingly, that You would reveal Yourself through Your Son to them, that they may come to a knowledge of the truth, and that You would open their eyes and deliver their hearts from darkness, so that they may come to know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent, so that they may have eternal life, and that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and pardon for all of their iniquities. We thank You for Your grace, which has done all of this on our behalf. We cannot praise ourselves. We do not take glory to our own selves, but gladly and willingly offer it to you, our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting Kootenychurch.org.